Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Women Today, brought to you by CityWing.com for your next flight away. At women Today at ManxRadio.com, text 166-177 or go to the Women Today Facebook page or you can also uh, comment on Twitter as well. We are joined live this afternoon by David Artis. I mean, you look very groomed. Gel in your hair, yeah? That's probably as far as it goes, I think, though. I'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to that sort of stuff. Really? Oh, I'm not sure I believe you. Well, you know what? When you get to over <coughs> over 40, um, <laughs> you do, as a, as, a, as a guy, you have that horrible moment where you'll just be heading out the door and you'll look in the mirror and you'll see a rogue hair from somewhere. It could be an ear or a nose or an eyelash. And it's it's like a tree root, right? So you're tugging at the thing. Do so you have to you have to be careful of that because they grow really quickly, and you have to get rid of them. So apart from that, maybe no. I ah, uh, you see, you've just moved. Oh, just hair gel. Oh, j- just a little bit of uh, you know. And you definitely n- shaped that stubble of yours. Yes. I no, I see. I love that, and I'm I'm not ashamed to say it. This whole stubble thing that everyone's got going on is brilliant because you can actually give yourself a bit of a jawline, and you can be lazy for most of the time and not shave most of your face. Hang on, hang on, hang <laughs> on. The theatrical world yeah yeah makeup yeah no and anyone that knows me any makeup lady out there in the theatrical will be laughing her head off because i run from any kind of makeup if i possibly can Oh, apart from Phantom of the Opera, how long do you spend in makeup for that? Yeah, no, that was kind of three hours a day. <laughs> I'm not sure that was and to make him look prettier. And then removing it. Yeah, that's an hour. Yeah. So, yeah. Get, so no, I don't have any skin. Well, you can't get away all. from that. No, if you take on that role. But <laughs> I mean, I, I am. I get. I'm very, I'm very sensitive to any kind of product on my face. Uh, I don't wear any mo- moisturizer because it, everything, everything irritates me. But they. Um, I mean, it was. This was a big old deal. This Phantom of the Opera thing, and they flew me over to Manchester to get. Uh, to, to do some prosthetics uh, testing and they uh, did it it was like a science thing you know they test loads of things on your skin and they found the one that was least irritable to me and um, yeah and I had to go through all that rigmarole every day yeah. it's interesting you see the funny thing is I would have thought that you know as much as we look after our skin ladies and you know we have our cleansing or toning or moisturising or whatever surely your skin is just as in need of some sort of nourishment and yeah but don't you think if you leave it don't you the natural oils come through I've got a friend actually who and she has never put any moisturiser or anything on her face her skin is amazing and she's just never done anything it can be genetic I mean talking as a beauty therapist um, it can be genetic and also male skin is a lot thicker than uh, female skin so it doesn't age as quick as well so they don't tend to look after it so good and also it can be slightly more oily so they do tend to get better skin but you know um, that doesn't occur obviously as teenagers because you see lots of boys around and they look after themselves so much better now and they're the first to go to the doctors if they need to because they've got acne coming through it's interesting you talk about um younger people because my eldest son I mean he's only eight and we've talked about this before he is obsessed with his appearance particularly his hair this morning he was going out to football right and he spent not joking half an hour he just had a comb and he was just combing over so he got the uh, parting in just the right place Middleson not bothered at all um but yeah the eldest just wants to be like David Beckham and I think those role models now are a lot more I suppose careful about their appearance inspiring as well actually you know I mean you look after you look at someone like David Beckham do we have to talk about David Beckham again <gasps> okay um, you know you think <laughs> of someone like David Beckham and the amount that he must do on himself to make him look great I mean you know must, I'm sorry I've just got carried away just carry on so can I, he's can got a perpetual w- wince on his when he screws his eyes up because he's always on camera got this you know thing where he doesn't work very well on radio I, I understand but he looks like he's peering through a telescope or something do you know what time. let's get him to do that picture and we'll post it 
during yes, the outbreak. You can, yeah. you can do an imitation I mean, that, of, of... Fair enough. That yeah. was uncanny. I can do a David Beckham. Are you yeah, saying no you're going to... Is David Artist going to do a David Beckham? <laughs> is he? I'm rubbing my hands together now. <laughs> oh, you should have... Just, have you got some white underpants things? Are they, I could find yeah, some. Yeah. Do you know what? That's just brought back a memory. <laughs> David Artist on stage at the Villa Marina doing the Levi's advert. Oh, Yes. Anyone that was okay. at the fashion show years ago, do you remember the heard it through the grapevine Levi's advert? Oh, yeah. Yes. Chap takes his jeans off and put them in it. You did that live yes, on stage. Yes, I did. I, I did. It I must did. be a YouTube it was clip for charity. that we can find. <laughs> Maybe that's a video for afterwards. Just saying. Um, some other thoughts then on uh, male grooming. So we've had a few here. It's it's uh, Sue is obviously talking about her other half. He showers every day and shaves once or twice a week. Does that count? Uh, Steve, hello. Steve says absolutely. Hashtag manscaping Steve this particular Steve does always look very very well turned out hashtag manscaping now mm. David I think we can talk about that can't we can we uh, can we is it before yeah I'll be we fine. I'll keep that. it I'll keep it generic no I, I was just telling telling you before that uh, we did full Monty and uh, I was I was directing not in the show but I was understudy for everybody and I don't know how the conversation turned to this and we talked turned to the you know uh, eventual time when the guys are going to have to get all of their kit off so it's basically naked on stage in front of 800 ladies and uh, and we're talking about the thongs that they had to wear just before they reveal all and they said and and the older guy who's John Craig who I love he said oh me me bits are going to be my hair's going to be poking out and everyone looked at him and said well don't you shave and it started off this debate and I didn't know because I've been with the same girl for 20 years and it's whole passed me by that men shave down there I, did, I had no clue apparently it's quite and, a popular thing now, oh yeah. no I felt such an idiot because even people older than me in that room were like why what do you just why? I'm gonna have to I mean did, did you or? you know did you follow suit then I, I don't where's my lawyer <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to women today on Manx radio it is now 24 minutes past two a woman with dyslexia has won a disability discrimination case against her employer, Starbucks, after she was accused of falsifying documents. A tribunal found Meseret Kamalchu has been discriminated against after making mistakes, which were in fact due to her difficulties with reading, writing and telling the time. She was given lesser duties at her branch in London and told to retrain, which left her feeling suicidal. I'm not a fraud. The name fraud itself is just... I shouldn't exist for me it's quite serious so uh, i'm sorry i'm crying i want to take a starbucks mission statement and the training i got given to apply it to the full i'll struggle don't worry help me but i'll get there in my own time in my own speed i love my job because it gives me the interaction of different kind of people educated disabled so many different customers that I meet and giving them a coffee it might not be a big deal but to me I'm making their life for the day at least happy. The judgment against Starbucks was made in mid-December and there will now be a separate hearing to determine any compensation. Miss Kermelchu says she has always made it known to her employer that she was dyslexic and the British Dyslexia Association said it would, should be a wake-up call for employers. Now, it estimates that one in ten people have dyslexia to some degree. Quite shocking figures, although many have not been formally diagnosed. We have been asking you to share your stories and have considerable feedback, which we will discuss in just a moment. But, Christy, what do you think of this case? Um, it's oh, This is a very difficult one, I think. Um, I think I, I, I've listened to her full interview and I've gone through various bits and pieces about it. I think she's obviously 
was very good at various elements of a job. She was she obviously loves the people element, the interaction with the customers. She obviously got on extremely well with the staff and she was hired for that by the sounds of things. Why if they knew she had dyslexia, which it sounds like they did, she said they let them know in advance, why they would give her the duties they did um, is kind of beyond me because that's almost dropping her in it, really, isn't it? I mean, Michelle, I think there's a bit there saying what it was that she was asked to do, isn't there? Yeah, she said that they were asked to take the temperature of fridges and water at specific times and then entering the results in a duty rotor. So that's, you know, clearly not going to be an easy thing for her to do. But also, it seems like a very trivial thing to get wrong and then accuse someone of fraud and take them to court over. I think their reaction was very extreme as well. But if it, if it means that it highlights these difficulties with discrimination in the workplace against people with dyslexia, that's got to be a good thing. Yeah. Again, it's got us discussing it, which is it is a great thing. You know, obviously, if one in ten people have dyslexia to some degree, because there are different varying degrees of, I'm sure, which you can have dyslexia. Um, and I also believe that with dyslexia, you know, has she said to them what degree she had like maybe she said she had slight dyslexia which is why she was given those duties possibly um michelle you suffer with dyslexia it's something that you have isn't it how do you feel about this i think it's really difficult um especially as you said that to say how dyslexic you are um there are obviously different degrees of dyslexia but when you have it you tend to compensate for for it so sometimes you you can say for example really struggle with telling the time but the competent you can you can work out how that you can then do it differently to other people it might take you longer but then you can you can do it in the end so if she is compensating then perhaps especially if she's been in this job for a long time it would be difficult for the employer to to realize that how difficult she does find certain tasks is it something that you found has got harder as you've got older or is it started to get easier because you've been able to manage it i think it's so much easier when you when you are told you have dyslexia before i was diagnosed i was diagnosed when i was about 14 and i really struggled with really simple tasks and and quite often got my um like capital d's and, and lowercase d's and b's mixed up and um but once you know you have it then you then it kind of clicks something in your brain you think oh okay i've just got to think about this a different way and there's other things such as like sheets you can get different colored sheets and it's just about using it to your advantage and you're still at school and do you get extra time for your exams to be able to do them yeah it's um it's really compensated for so you i get 25 percent extra time um the use of a reader and a word processor so it's really helpful See, that is fascinating and just shows how far we have come because a very, very good friend of mine was telling me only just last week, in fact, before this all came out, she was saying that when she was in school, which was a, a few years ago now, um, she now knows that she had dyslexia. At the time, it wasn't acknowledged or diagnosed. Now, when she had to read out things from books in class and read out loud, she struggled so badly that it made her feel sick. But rather than being discussed what her, her issues might have been and trying to help her be, simply because of the lack of understanding and I'm not criticising the teachers in any way because there was a lack of understanding at that time she would be sent every day to the headmaster's office she had to go in the headmaster's office and read out loud to them until she got it right and all it did was now give her this almost like a phobia of reading out loud and so to hear you say that is brilliant because it just shows that now we do acknowledge it we do you know we do know that it's something that can be dealt with in a more sympathetic way which is great
Okay, so I'm going to say something slightly controversial. Do you think it's overdiagnosed? Do you think that people um, who I would know maybe back in the day, because, you know, when I went to school, people weren't really diagnosed with things like dyslexia or Asperger's or um, autism. They were literally maybe not as bright as the rest of us. And now it seems that every child or adult seems to have a label now. I think in, in times gone by, you would have just been called stupid. Um, and it, and it's really not the case. And if you have certain tendencies, you know, you might do the do the test for dyslexia, but there's no guarantee that you're you're going to get through that test. Um, and I know quite a few close um, friends of mine um, have got these tendencies. They struggle with certain things, so they've they've been tested for dyslexia, but not got through the test. So there are definite strong um, guidelines put in place so that people who don't really have dyslexia, maybe just slightly different brain setup they're not going to get the title of dyslexia unless they are dyslexic. And going back to the case, do you think it's right that she gets compensation for this, Christy? Um, I think she... The, the interesting thing, if you listen to the whole interview, and there is a link on our Facebook page there, um, she was very traumatised by this, actually, because, because she was... Uh, called a fraud and she said that really affected her and she actually says that she she did consider committing suicide at one point um, because she said she was sort of dragged through the papers and was told that she was doing something fraudulent which of course she wasn't at all she was just simply mixing the numbers up it was as simple as that I do think though uh, when the interviewer is asking her um, what does she think that Starbucks could have done um, to sort of alleviate her problem and she does say something which I think is, is actually slightly unfair on the employer because she says well surely they could have brought someone in to check over what I'd done, surely they could have spent more time doing such and such thing. Now th there is a line to be drawn where you do have to also acknowledge the fact that the employer does need to get certain things out of you as an employee, it's just a case of if you're not suited for that particular job just move them on to something else I would have thought it would all be it would almost be like employing two people to do the same exactly. job wouldn't it and you know which just companies can't afford sense. to do that can yeah. they you know at all well we're interested to hear your thoughts on this and you can text us one double six one double seven you can go to our social media Facebook Twitter and you can email women today at manxradio.com we have got some thoughts on this Christy haven't we we have, yeah. Um, we've got one here from Angie. Uh, if we had the Equality Act on the island, they would have no choice to deal with this. Remember, uh, dyslexics think outside of the box. They can be incredibly inventive and see solutions to problems that Joe Bloggs would never see. That's very interesting. She also mentions Richard Branson and Albert Einstein as a couple of examples of people who have dyslexia. Perhaps a few adaptions might just be worth it. And uh, Gary says uh, he is profoundly dyslexic and he's heard so many people talk about it and there's a lot of myths surrounding it, um, like seeing a word backwards and it's not a visual problem. Confusing between D and B is one of the problems that con that confuses the idea of it being a visual problem. Personally, he'd like to see for social media, email, etc., a universal symbol for people to use so other people know that they're dyslexic. It would take away some of the anxiety, especially as it makes the problem, this could make the problem worse. And another one from Freya here. Uh, I really like the idea in principle myself, though. I usually choose not to tick the disability box, so to speak, for fear of how I will be perceived. For example, some people think dyslexia is about intelligence or they make a real issue out of it. I wish more people understood dyslexia so there'd be less people suffering in silence. And that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Is when you fill out an application form, should you actually be ticking the box, you know, that you have a disability because you have dyslexia? Michelle, would you do that? Totally. Um, 
um, I've been doing a lot of university applications recently and you have to state that you have a learning disability and then there'll be things put in place for you to help that so you know if you're doing a, a reading test or something like that you'll get extra time and you'll have bigger print if that's what helps you and stuff so definitely by saying you've got it it will benefit you so much do you feel that when you put that job application in and it's marked disability and you have dyslexia and maybe you've written in the comments section do you not feel though that maybe some some companies that application form may be put to the side and you may not get the interview because of it Potentially, but uh, you know that's the employer's problem, not yours. And if they're going to take you on, if they're not going to take you on because you've written that down, then you shouldn't be working for them. Now, our guest today is a woman who could be described as either courageous or just slightly crazy, or even both. Kirsty Russell is about to embark on a very big adventure. She describes it as a leisurely Sunday drive across ten thousand miles in two continents, starting in London and ending in Russia. After passing through Mongolia, there is no route, no backup, no support, and the only rule is that the car must be hilariously underpowered. She's here to tell us all about it. Firstly, Kirsty, tell us about this crazy adventure you're about to embark on. Where are you going? Okay, well, it starts from London, um, officially. Obviously, we're starting from the Isle of Man. Um, we're going to have to get the boat across and drive down there for that. Um, we're going through 17 different countries. Um, as you've just mentioned, there is no route. However, the one that we're doing is quite popular, and there are about 300 teams expected to do it this year. Um, and yeah, I mean, the finish line used to be in Mongolia, um, but for whatever reasons, they've changed that to um, Russia or Siberia. Um, but it will be predominantly passing through Mongolia. So, yeah. I have to ask, why? Because <laughs> um, why not? Um, <laughs> yeah, basically, I had um, I was inspired by Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor's adventures um, when I watched them doing the long way round a few years ago. And I just sort of started researching to see if there was any way I could do anything similar myself. And then I found this rally had been going for 10 years. And it's pretty much been about five years of me trying to work out how I can do it, get the money together, you know, get people on board to do it. And um, it's just, it's finally happening, so. Because who are you going with? Um, so I'm going with a random stranger I met on the internet. Um, <laughs> that sounds a little bit dodgy. Um, yeah, it's not all that bad. Um, I suppose a lot of people that do the rally um, are in the same situation as me where they can't find somebody to go with. I mean, it's obviously a big commitment. It's a lot of time off work. Um, so they sort of put you all in, you know, on one website and we all chat. And I guess you just find somebody that you have things in common with and you go from there. I mean, I, I wanted it to be somebody from within the UK so we could meet up quite easily. But um, as it happened, um, the person I got along with most was based in America. <laughs> Which has caused a few visa problems, I believe. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a struggle working everything out, like the dates we're going to be in, which countries and how to apply for the visas. Um, we can't go through the likes of Iran. Um, Americans can't go there. Um, we, we've managed to figure it all out and he's due for a visit here in a couple of weeks as well which will sort of make things a bit easier we can do a bit of plotting while he's here so yeah and another problem that you have come across is your passport doesn't have enough pages uh, yeah <laughs> so probably should have checked that um, a couple of months ago uh, yeah I just sent that off today uh, yesterday sorry to um, to get a new passport because I only had about six pages left and I'm pretty sure I need more visas than that so <laughs> it's expensive stuff who's going to be doing the driving um, well, it'll hopefully be half and half, um, although he will have to get used to driving on the other side of the road and with a gear stick, so 
probably need to do some driving lessons when he visits as well. And obviously being female, I have to ask, have you had any stick for being a woman driver? <laughs> um, no, actually not yet. Um, maybe closer to the time, um, but I think I'm a pretty awesome driver. So, What are you going to do if you actually hook up to each other and obviously you spend all this time together and you realise you don't get on? Um, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. It'll be <laughs> fine. We'll just wing it. <laughs> Can I ask, you mentioned we're talking about the driving. Uh, is it true, the car packet of crisps? Uh, it is true, yes. Um, how did that happen? I, I put a, an advert out on Facebook saying I wanted a car that was so crappy, basically, that I it had to be worth about the, you know, the cost of a bag of crisps. Um, somebody came forward and actually offered me a car for a packet of crisps, and I had to go and take a look. Um, so I went out to Glenvine to see um, this guy and he he took me for a test drive in it and uh, I just knew at that stage. And what is, what is the thing about being underpowered then? Why? Um, the rally real state that it has to be less than one litre um, because they don't really want to make it easy for you. I mean, obviously it's just a 10,000 mile drive so um, it'd just be way too easy so we, we have to have uh, underpowered vehicles and... Uh, yeah, it's funny. It's funny as possible. So. How does that work, though? I mean, for anyone <laughs> that isn't a mechanic and doesn't know enough about cars, you know, how is that going to work? Um, I I don't really know, to be honest with you. Um, luckily for me, my dad's a mechanic, so hopefully the vehicle will actually be sound before it goes. Um, and then um, it's just a case of, you know, obviously breakdowns are inevitable, but we'll be driving in convoys, things like that. Um, there will be breakdowns, but they'll always be cover. So. Uh, not too worried about that. Very brave lady and crazy at the same time. But this is not an aid of a good cause, isn't it? It's for charity. It Who is. are you supporting? Um, so we're supporting two charities. Um, one of them is Wish Upon a Dream, Isle of Man, um, and uh, which you've probably heard of. And the other one is a rainforest charity, which is uh, Cool Earth. So we're uh, 50% to, to each of everything we raise. So you've mentioned you're not 100% sure why, why not. But is it a competition? Are you competing for something? Um, it's not really a competi competition as such. It's, um, I mean, I suppose it's more of an adventure and it's a challenge for everyone that's actually doing the rally. And the, the main aim of it is, is to raise a lot of money for charity. Um, I, I'm pretty sure they've, they've raised millions. They've been going for 10 years. So, Have you got a personal target you'll be aiming for? Um, yeah, I'm trying to aim for £5,000 and that's between the two charities. So, yeah. Can I just say as well, we were chatting about this last week, uh, mm -hmm. just briefly, and we were talking about the car and the fact you got it for a packet of crisps. Can you just tell me, I think this is such a lovely thing. When you got the car, there was a tape in it, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah, it came with a few extras. Uh, yeah, there was a great tape in there, so it's got a tape deck. Um, I haven't listened to anything else since I got it two or three months ago. Um, it just has a fantastic mixtape on, on there with um, Jimi Hendrix and the likes on it. So How meant to be was that? That was a nice little extra, yeah. <laughs> Is it going to soundtrack the trip? Um, yeah, I, I hope so. Yeah, that's that's going to be there till the end, definitely. Now tell me all about your fundraising ideas. You've been asking your boss to get involved and you've done everything from <laughs> making soup. Um, there's actually one happening as we speak. Um, fortunately, obviously, I'm not able to be there for it. Um, we've done a pancake day in my office today. Um, 
and all the managers are getting pied at three o'clock. Um, <laughs> oh, so. quick, we're going to have to finish this soon okay. so you can get off because you know, there must be somebody that you want oh, to do that to. No, it's fine. They can take photos. It's fine. Mm. <laughs> well, you've even reduced your working hours to be able to prepare for it because people may know you from the Rovers Return, of course, as barmaiding. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've been there for a while. So I just cut down the hours for now, but never say never. I might go back. You never know. Now, being a woman, of course, mm-hmm. what, convenience do you th- what conveniences do you think you're going to most miss when you're traveling? Oh, um, I mean, you're wearing makeup right now. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's nothing. Um, I don't know, maybe uh, uh, food, maybe? I'm not sure. <laughs> like, I do like um, trying crazy food and stuff, but um, I do love food and I eat a lot of it. So, Are you going to uh, sneak any little things with you? Oh, I'm going to have to, aren't I? And I think a bottle of gin might be necessary because I'm also 30 during the rally, so... Can I just point uh-huh. one thing out there? It's not advisable to drink and drive. <laughs> oh, oh, right. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I read that somewhere. We need to make sure that we get <laughs> yeah. that point in quite quickly, don't we? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, what will your next adventure be? How can you top um, this one? It's huge. Oh, I've been asked this so many times. I I don't know. That's my main concern about the entire endeavour is I don't know how I'm going to top it next year. I really don't. Um, dog sliding across Alaska or something. I, I don't that know. sounds fantastic. I don't know. <laughs> hey, I've thought of a Joe and the Go feature. There we go. Can I come with you and we can do a feature on it? <laughs> there you go. Except that means we would lose you for a large amount of time, Joe. I I'm don't think sure Yeah, I've got that. Alex Brinley in the other studio waving up and down like he'd be quite <laughs> excited about that. I think I don't think too many people would miss me, but yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Do you know what as well? There's one thing we've not mentioned. Uh, there is a picture of you and we did mention this earlier on the show. You're in a hot dog costume. Tell us why you're wearing that today. <laughs> Um, it's it was kind of a random random purchase that just sort of stuck with me and become famous around my family and friends. So it does get worn to a lot of events. Um, the first one being whale watching in Seattle. <laughs> and is is it going with you? Um, it's going it's going with us. Yeah, um, definitely. I I'm gonna have to wear it in every single country. I think um, just to keep everyone happy. So yeah, definitely come. With Might me. keep you a bit warm as well. Yeah. Our guest today is familiar with loud noises and the smell of not only greasy bikers, but petrol too. Welcome to Deputy Clerk of the Course, Ruth Costain. Thank you for being with us today, Ruth. Thank you. We're going to hear more about what you get up to over the summer months shortly, but uh, for now, I just have to ask you, do you ride a bike? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I don't have a license. I did learn um, and I've never raced. Is it something that you're thinking about doing at all? Possibly not anymore. It was something I did want to do uh, a few years ago, but um, I think that moment's passed now. Don't tell me it's about age. Please don't tell me. My New Year's resolution is to make sure that I pass my um, bike test this year, and uh, I am 40, so it's not about age, Ruth, because you are younger than me, surely. (laughs) (laughs) What started off your interest in the sport? I grew up uh, going to various events as a a child with my father and... um, that gave me that initial interest which developed as I grew up and I just started helping out getting involved and then I in a more official capacity. And how does it feel though you are obviously a woman in a really male dominated job and you know how does that feel to you? Well it's not something I've ever noticed and I'm not sure that it is male dominated and um, there are a lot of women involved in the sport at racing level at marshalling and at the official level so there are plenty of women there. They may not have the, the high profile, but they are there. And would you say the numbers of female involved have crept up over the years? Definitely. There are uh, definitely, certainly as riders, um, that's increased over the last, well, 20 years or so. And even like technical um, 
officials and uh, clerks of the course, that sort of thing has definitely increased. Well, let's go back to how it all started. And you got involved with marshalling, didn't you? What age were you? I would have been um, 20, 21, 21, I think, um, when I started marshalling. Um, started in Kurt Michael, I used to marshal in Kurt Michael. I marshalled there for about eight or nine years. How did you get involved with marshalling? Is it a family thing? It was at the time. Um, my dad was deputy sector marshal there, um, so I thought it would be a good thing to start doing. And um, yeah, I, I was there, stayed in the same place. I became a flag marshal and um, eventually became deputy sector marshal when he, he finished doing it. What does a flag marshal mean? I don't think they have them so much now. Um, they used to have dedicated flag marshals who had the responsibility of signalling the flags um, for whatever you needed to communicate to the riders. Um, if there was an incident or um, something on the circuit, uh, that was your, your job. Did it ever that. make you nervous at all, being a marshal? No, it, it didn't at the time. Uh, looking back and the way it's changed and the safety that's involved now, perhaps, maybe should have been but it wasn't something you ever gave a second thought to really well we've had an email in from jenny um and she says i have a question for ruth she's in a unique position during race periods i was wondering how she deals emotionally if there is an accident um as they will have personal knowledge of races and families and have to deal with people asking questions well primarily the first thing is to the first priority is to deal with the incident itself and when you do that you have your role and that's what you focus on so you're not thinking of anything else except what you're doing it's only really later when things quieten down that you start to think about it and it, it helps and um, the best thing is to talk to others if you're a marshal talk to the other marshals or if you're in control you, you discuss it amongst yourselves and it helps you to process it um, and you think about it um, but then you have to move on you can't dwell on it it will always be there and you'll think about it from time to time reflect on it but we all help each other just there's a lot of respect within the group of marshalling isn't there yes yes there is definitely um and if somebody does have a more difficult time dealing with it there is counseling um available through the marshal association things like that so it is a, a very supported role what rewards do you get out of it though what do you enjoy the most out of it when you're marshalling um, just being a part of such a big event, it's, um, it's a great camaraderie within it. Um, although it's a competitive sport, there's also, it's also a very friendly sport outside of the actual race. Everyone helps each other out and it's a great atmosphere. It's just a great thing to be a part of. OK, so we're talking about safety there. Um, there's been a lot of controversy over the years about where and how, you know, where you can watch it from. And I'm just thinking after some of the major accidents that we've had, how do we keep the areas safe around the course for spectators to watch? So throughout the year, um, out of the season, it's risk assessed um, by, the, by the ACU and by those involved with it and the government. And there are places around the course that they assess to be at higher risk than others. Uh, so there will be either prohibited areas or restricted areas. And you keep have to ensure people are not in those areas whilst racing or practicing is underway. Um, and then there's the other things about common sense. Um, you choose your position, you make sure you're, you're protected and, you know, there's something between you and, and bikes. 
I have to say, um, I'll hold my hands up. It was the first year I watched um, any of the motorcycle um, sporting last year. And I was taken aback at how fast they went. I was just sat on one of the banks. And it is scary that you, you know, you could easily just fall off. And it's really scary as a spectator. Yeah, I can imagine it, it is. Um, and even in, in my time, it, they've got a lot faster than than they were when I started. Um, but you tend to get used to it. So, But for a first-time spectator, it can be a bit... You can be taken aback a bit, and it seems a bit hazardous. But um, it is risk-assessed, and you know, safety is at the forefront of the organiser's mind. Well, let's look at your career now. In 2005, you became the Deputy Sector Marshal for TT and MGP. Then in 2008, you became the first female to be elected as a director of the Manx Motor Cycle Club, creating a little piece of Manx history. How did that feel? It was it was great. It was a, a fantastic surprise. It was not something I was had in in mind. It's just something that kind of came about. It was a big honour um, at the time because it was the first female. And okay, it might not be a world changing event, but it it was it was something that kind of had changed within motorsport. Somebody that you recognise, Phil Taubman, of course, <laughs> clerk of the course, and um, for MGP in Southern Hundred, and I love this. I found this out. He said it back in 2014 that out of the nine people controlling the races in the tower, six of them are female. Look out, boys! Pink power is coming. <laughs> uh, that must feel really good. Yes, it is. It's good to see times change, um, and for there to be equality. I mean, you don't want them all female. You don't want them all male. It's it's to have that equal mix an opportunity within the sport. And do you think that you get the respect from the races as well, being female? From what I've experienced, yes. I don't think they see it any different. Um, you're a person and you're you're there in that official capacity. So in 2014, you were appointed, as we mentioned before, Deputy Clerk, one of the Deputy Clerks for the course for the MGP. Just tell us a little bit about what that entails. Well, as a deputy, you're there uh, to support the clerk of the course. You assist them in in their role you you're involved in the decisions that they make so the running of the race um, ensuring that it's run in accordance with the regulations um, and the scheduling make sure it's run as per the schedule or rescheduling as things happen um, making sure all all the relevant people are there so you've got your medical cover and um, all the marshals are in place the circuits all set up it's assisting the clerk of the course with every aspect really and then if the clerk isn't there for whatever reason, then you step up and you may make have to make some decisions. How does it feel with those weather delays? It's um, frustrating, um, but it's out of our control. And on a course which is as big as the TT course, it's inevitable there's going to be different weather in different locations. It's not it's not a compact course where it's either wet or it's dry and you can control it. Um, but we're in contact with everyone out on the circuit we get reports back we're in contact with the met office who tell us their predictions and so you just have to try and make the best decision you can with the information you have it's interesting i was watching um, a clip from i think it was a couple of years back now 
where was it is it the northwest it's run quite often in the rain and uh the dunlop boys were over and and there was that race that was run in the rain quite controversially in a way and the dunlops just took off and they had no fear and they were going around the track and there's this fabulous clip where they come back into the paddock afterwards and i think it's guy martin and john mcginnis had pulled out because they said they didn't feel comfortable doing it and you just see one of the dunlops come up and they're all just applauding them and saying that was brilliant what you did but it's interesting isn't it that some of the courses they will allow them to race in the rain and and thankfully i think personally thankfully that we're a bit more it seems like we're we're a bit less keen on allowing that yeah and some riders the dunlops especially they they're not phased by rain they they phased by anything. No, no, I don't think so. Are they phased by anything? I wouldn't say they're brilliant. I'd say they're crackers. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the general general <laughs> thoughts of Martin and McGuinness as well. Yeah, yeah and others um, don't. But there's other. It's not just their preference. There's also things like the available tyres. It's not necessarily the tyres that there were. 10, 15 years ago to be able to race in the rain. So it, it's not necessarily a safe thing to do. Talking of controversy, last year it was reported that changes should be made to the MGP because there are huge amounts of newcomers going out at the same time and perhaps with little experience. What do you think about that? Uh, yes, there was a, a lot of... There's various opinions on this. Um, it is something that we've looked at. I don't think there's... I mean, we're always restricted by grid size, so it's not like we've been inundated with newcomers. Uh, we have experienced an increase in popularity last few years but it's something that we've taken away as a club and we are looking for this year to look at the quality of the newcomer entries rather rather than um, a bit more in depth than we did do so and we're doing that in conjunction with the ACU so there'll be stricter um, things about having to attend a newcomers weekend uh, having to be shown around the course by a qualified instructor and there'll be more restrictions on um, getting their ACU mountain license as well I believe because the job entails for you all year round getting together and discussing new things and the changes that are going to be happening this is this isn't a job that just happens over the summer months is it no definitely not it's um it's a 12 months a year job um we might have a couple of quiet months maybe October November but even then we're looking back at the last event what can be done better uh, that sort of thing but the regulation starts um being looked at um, October, November time, because uh, they need to be approved by the ACU and uh, out ready for the riders for when they want to enter. And then we're into the entries period. And uh, there's so many other things to coordinate with other agencies as well. Not long now. It's all coming up, no, isn't it? Yeah. Do we know how many days it is? Not off the top of my head. I think, no. Yeah, I can't think of it off the top of my head either, but it's it's not that far off 100, is it? No. <laughs> so you're obviously quite proud of your story, which we're about to hear in a minute. Really proud. Not many people can say I, they've done it on the TV, <laughs> so to speak. I think I want to marry you. So let's go back to the beginning then. Uh, where did all this begin? We had spoken about marriage and our future and you know being together and we were pretty sure that that's the way it was going to go anyway. My dad is a jeweller on the island and so I think Nick thought my expectations of a ring were quite high which they might be a little bit but <laughs> so he always said to me that um, I want to do it and I want to do it right but I can't afford the ring that you want right now. I always watched GMTV with my mum in the morning before I went to work they put out for the Valentine's Day because I think it was a leap year the following year for women to propose and uh, I thought hmm that sounds good I, you know, I can show him it's not all about the ring 
So uh, I put that down, not expecting anything back, and they contacted me, but asked me to do it for Christmas. So I actually had only five days' notice. Oh, my goodness. Uh, very, very scary, and that's, that's how it came about. My wow. dad had a bit of a heart attack about it because he knew that Nick had bought a ring and was going to I'd propose actually, on Christmas Day. I'd actually Day. been away the weekend earlier with Kerry's dad to watch the football match. And I did the sort of traditional thing and asked him if, you know, I could marry his daughter and I'd got the ring all organised, which Kerry didn't know at the time and either. nobody else knew at all. So did your dad tell you? Did he warn no. you in advance? He rang GMTV and tried to get them to stop it. <laughs> no. <laughs> and it was only GMTV that so you know, got my dad and said, try and get the ring back off him, we can do a real twist on this and surprise them both. So he just called me one evening as I was walking home from work and just said, uh, Kerry's been in the shop and I was showing her a ring that I've got her mum for Christmas and she tried it on and I realised that the ring you'd bought was the wrong size. Could I have it back just Clever. to resize it? So I, you know, didn't think anything of it. Little did I know. <laughs> and then GMTV rang me and said, bring along somebody's support. I, so I brought my sister along. I then obviously did my proposal and then my sister popped the ring in Nick's pocket. It went to like a commercial break. Uh, Lindsay, Kerry's sister, gave me the ring and I went up and spoke to Richard Gatesford who was the TV presenter and I said, I've been given the ring and he says, I know, it's all set up, ready for you to, to do it back. Proposed back on the, it was all typical TV. They, they knew totally what they were doing. They must have loved this. It was <laughs> well, putting yeah. a whole new angle on. So I thought it? he knew, but he didn't. So yeah, it was it was turned, a joke on us both. But it was brilliant. It was the best day ever. They turned the tables on us both, really. For you, Nick. I mean, first of all, it is more the tradition that the man is going to propose to the woman, and you had planned on doing that. So first of all, is that element, and then also it's just sprung on you. Did you feel in any way like it was kind of stealing your thunder? No, not at all. I mean, I was undecided whether I was going to do it on Christmas Day or New Year's Day or whatever, so it kind of took that, that part of it away from me. But, took the uh, pressure off. When we look back at it now, we've got like a really unique thing that we can watch back and, and show our children, you know, when they ask the question, how, so how did you propose to mum? And I say, well, I didn't. Your mother did it to me, you know. The minute I saw Nick, I, it just came out. I knew exactly what I wanted to say. I hadn't planned what I was going to say, but I I, I think it came out really well, didn't it? Do you remember the yeah. words? You must do, because you'll have watched it lots of times. Lots and lots of times, <laughs> yeah. I just basically told him that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with him and would he marry me? And ah. he said yes really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Not because there were cameras on you or anything. There was only three million people watching or something like that. Didn't it almost not happen? Wasn't there at the point where you were worried that Nick wasn't going to come to work? Yeah, he wasn't I, sure. But it, I'd had my work's Christmas do the weekend. So essentially, I was uh, a bit his, worse for wear. How did you feel at the end of it? My boss at the time gave me the day off. Uh, he they booked a table at a, a nice restaurant in in Douglas and taxis everywhere and drinks and. Manx we Radio and the local media Aww. contacted us. And you're still being contacted now by news all over I know, the world. I know, it's like only 12 years later. 14, 14 years, years later, later sorry. I only yeah. found out as well um, after the proposal, my granddad told me that my grandma proposed to him on the same day way back when. And you didn't know that I didn't in advance. know that and my grandma had proposed to him. 
That is so lovely, isn't yeah, it? Just to add so. to the romance. And it obviously went well because you do have two little ones out of this who <laughs> just, just shout hello. Hello. Hey, come, come, come here, come to the microphone. Luke. And what's your name? Amy. And what do you think about their proposal? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They've seen it that many times. They roll their eyes now. <laughs> How did your family and friends react to it then? My dad was saying, he's very traditional, Nick. I'm not sure he'd like this. <laughs> um, but excited as well. You know, everyone got up to watch it. A few. There was a lot of people that were uh, setting off for work that morning yeah. and, and caught it on the TV and were like, realised who it was. And, uh, a couple of your friends wanted to ring you and late. warn you. Yeah, a few people wanted to ring me and warn me. There's a few, good few people late for work that morning as well. So I can imagine. And so what happens every anniversary then? Do you watch it? Put it out there on Facebook for everyone to see you again. You always put it up on Facebook, <laughs> don't you? You love that. Nick always tells me he's going to get me back one day, but definitely, I'm, def I'm, I'm still waiting. Just you wait. I'm still waiting. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for coming in to talk to us today. It's great to speak to you about it. Even no Was it 12 or 14 years, Nick? 14. 14 <laughs> years later, just checking. <laughs> Don't forget that next time. <laughs> Sponsoring Women Today, citywing.com, for business or leisure flights. This is Women Today with me, Joe Pack, and Christy Dehaven. It's 20 to 3. Joining us in the studio is mezzo-soprano Mandy Griffin. Mandy, you are well known on the island for the music scene, appearing in many, many concerts and shows, and of course the Manx Music Festival, where you've had considerable success over the years. But your first experience with the girls was somewhat unusual. You say you were forced to make your debut there. Yeah, we had, I say, yeah, forced. We had uh, a very enthusiastic music teacher when I was at primary school called uh, Miss Clegg, who I owe a lot to at Pure Cloth Workers and uh, we were all sort of lined up and uh, all had to sing and, and, and we were sort of picked out if if it was thought that, that you could sing and so uh, never even crossed my mind that, that this might happen so uh, I was picked out of the line and uh, dutifully learnt Miss Jenny Wren which I can remember all the words of still and uh, sort of uh, thrust onto that, that guild platform really. I mean I had no clue what it was about, didn't know anything so I very happily sort of bounced out onto the stage. Did um, you parents encourage you and support you? Yeah, well, my mum used to sing a lot. Um, I used to, I remember I used to think she always sounded fantastic and she was a big musical theatre fan. So there was always uh, sort of records back in the day of uh, various musicals playing. So uh, yeah, very much uh, there was always music happening in the house. Is it just opera that you listen to or do you listen to various genres of music? Yeah, I tend not to listen to opera at all, actually. Um, I think uh, I tend to, in things of what I listen to, I tend to stay away from the stuff that I actually sing because I think if I'm listening to the stuff I'm singing I just feel I should be practicing it or working on it or, or doing something like that so uh, what about listening to yourself back I do do that yeah that painful torture of listening to yourself back <laughs> hearing all the mistakes thinking oh I could do that much better are you overcritical I don't think overcritical I think it's good to be it's good to be critical of yourself I think that's uh, you know how you sort of grow and improve and get get better really so uh, not overcritical but do you ever listen to something and then think do you know what I nailed that once yeah one there's one there's Ooh, one what thing was it? Um, a few years ago I think it was probably 2008 the uh, Choral Society did Verdi's Requiem 
and I was one of the soloists there and uh, it, it was all recorded and it was a, a massive work for me to do um, and not really it was almost a bit of too much of a big work for my voice really so I approached it like an Olympic athlete and I was training in the gym I was watching my diet I was practicing like a demon and actually I'm quite pleased with that I think it was the only time when I listened back I thought actually I don't think at that time I could have done that much better than I did diet yeah, you know, making sure you eat really healthily because singing's such a, um, I don't know, it's it's like it's a real your, your whole body's involved in it. So I think uh, if you eat rubbish, which I do most of the time, that that sort of shows in your voice really. So I think it was just that thing of uh, really making sure I was eating properly and getting my veggies in and uh, having enough carbohydrate and enough protein. And I suppose it. it is very physical, isn't it, when you're singing, especially when you're singing opera. You don't tend to think of it as in you need to be aware of your diet and nutrition. Well. Just thinking of the Guild, you have been really successful over the years. Tell us all about that. Well, I've had a bit of a Guild obsession, probably from that first time, actually. And uh, there's a there's a story uh, where I think I'd... Uh, I think it was that first visit to the Guild. And my mum and I were coming out, and um, Cleveland night wasn't on a Saturday then. It was on a Thursday night. And we were walking past, and uh, I was asking my mum what was happening in there. And she'd sort of said, oh, that's this thing called the Cleveland Medal. And she told me all about it. And I just thought that sounded like the most amazing thing ever. So I'd said to her, I'm going to win that one day. And she was like, oh. yeah. Right. So uh, so that was my sort of ambition from the age of about six was to win a Cleveland medal. And um, yeah, almost to an obsessive degree, really. And it didn't happen until I was 32. But uh, but it sort of was a good motivator and kept me focused and uh, what, kept me going on things. What did it feel like to win? Oh, my goodness, that first one. It was just... I think possibly the best moment of my life when when my name was said because I'd been in the final five times so I was beginning to think oh you know it's always a bridesmaid never the bride sort of thing um, so then when finally my name was said yeah it was uh, it was a good thing and you've won it several times since obviously as well, <laughs> well four, four now yeah yeah <laughs> Sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.